Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the virtual LSE for this evening's events, Threats to the Women's Rights Movement, with my guest, Dr. Anna Livius. I am Grace Lorden. I am an Associate Professor in Behavioural Science at the London School of Economics. I'm also the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative. It's my absolute privilege to have um, Anne Oliverus with us today. Anne is a chair and senior partner at McAllister Oliverus. Dr Oliverus is recognised for her pioneering work representing victims of sexual violence, sexual harassment and discrimination in the UK and the US. Nelson Mandela, whom Anne advised, described her as a lawyer who has advised me well, who has courageously advanced the cause of justice and improved life's opportunities for hundreds of millions of women, Blacks and disadvantaged worldwide. Um, I know she is known here in London as a trailblazing lawyer, and indeed she is. And I often see her as incredibly brave because she's often willing to speak about things that other people don't want to speak to. So I'm hoping that you'll get involved this evening and that you will ask whatever questions you would like in the chat. Um, I will be checking them during the session. Um, it would be remiss of us not to start tonight with um, Roe versus Wade and have a discussion about what the overturning of the abortion laws in the US mean for the US, mean for working professionals, and also indeed beyond the US. Um, so Anne, I'll start by saying welcome to the LSE. Um, and, I, and my first question to you, because I know you saw this coming. I saw you in a conversation with Gloria Steinem in New York in, in, in Soho House. And I know you said um, when the rumor was leaked that you weren't surprised. Um, and I know you're devastated, but I'm interested as to how you knew that this was actually coming. For those who don't expect it, it might give us some clarity on what we actually what we missed. You know, for 50 years, the evangelicals and the right wingers in the United States have made a plan and they've been working on this plan. And of course, you know, when Trump was elected, they said, look, we'll look away from your own personal choices in your own personal life, where Trump has probably had to pay for many abortions from what we know about him. But give us three seats on the Supreme Court. And that was probably one of the very few things that Trump actually delivered on they got three seats on the court. And so now we have a very radically conservative right-wing court, and they have now come out with a decision that had to have been anticipated because for 50 years, they've been building towards this and they have told us they're building towards it. It has not been something that's been subtle or discreet. What has been more remarkable is that those of us who you know, are in, in favor of abortion, who you know, embrace abortion, we, we listened to it. We heard it. But, you know, we didn't do anything. The Democrats in the United States, you know, when Hillary Clinton said, you will have the fall of Roe v. Wade when she was running for president, she was ridiculed. Nobody took her seriously. And then Obama said, well, let's not fight this battle. You know, we really, this is not right. We don't really have to fight this one. Let's fight other things. And he looked the other way. As Biden has looked the other way. You know, this has never been that important for the Democrats. And so now we have this crushing arrival. It's, it was completely foreseeable. We knew this was coming. The question I have for those of us who perhaps, you know, vote on the left, who vote, you know, or who just are you know, people who believe in abortion options. Why did we let this happen? What's going on? And what are we gonna do now to change that tide? And before we get into the, the damage that, that is done by this decision, you mentioned the idea of, of changing the tide. So what are the possibilities for this going backwards to have a reversal of what was announced on Friday? Well, look, the general discussion um, in the States and throughout Europe in the past couple of months has been that for the midterm elections coming up, that President Biden is going to lose it, that we're going to be flooded again with people who have been endorsed by Trump and, and other you know, Republicans of that ilk. And I think people have come to say this wistfully, sadly, but you know, acknowledging that this is what's going to happen. Now, the Roe v. Wade decision may be, this may be something that's going to galvanize Biden and his people, and it's going to give them a slap to say, okay, we need to do something now. And if he actually moves, if he actually gets to work and stands up strong on this issue, we may be able to win the midterms, and he's going to have to put legislation in place, hopefully federally, that will create a national abortion rights bill and, and get it enforced. We need to do that and we need to get on it really right away. 
And is your sense that this is happening now among Biden and the people who need to take action? I'm not so sure. I've been surprised, sadly. I mean, that's a that's a perceptive question, Grace. Now, what's been absent in these past days to me is the the lack of voice from the White House. Where is Biden? He's made one sort of stumbly speech. But how come we're not hearing of rafts of people, you know, speaking out on this topic who are outraged? Yes, we're reading things in the press, really articulate things, persuasive things, but I'm not hearing a lot of discussion. I've just been in Canada the day the decision arrived and I was going to a meeting and spontaneously there were thousands of people that gathered in Vancouver and I joined this march, you know, for abortion rights and it was really inspiring. Now I've come to the States, I'm in California right now. I don't see any marches. I'm not getting any messages, join this, do this, sign this petition, nothing. So are we just going to sit back and is it going to be, well, okay, we're in California, for instance, or New York, or one of the, as people would say, more enlightened, tolerant states. And, you know, we're white and we're wealthy or we're black and we're wealthy or we're Asian and we're wealthy. And, you know, it's really not hurting us. You know, I really can't be bothered. I've got other things to do. Somebody else will take this one on, not me. I'm afraid that that right now seems to be where the mood is. People are outraged. People are talking about it. But talk gets you very little when you've got a right wing in this country, in the United States, that is active, organized, and effective. And, and the Democrats are not those things. I think and most people who will have tuned in tonight will understand the kind of immediate damage that has been done with respect to women's rights. So now it's not as easy to access an abortion as it was in the past. But if you think about the damage that's done beyond just the taking away of abortion rights in the US to the women's rights movement, and even what the trickle through might look for in the UK, what comes to mind? This is a huge, humiliating slap on all women and for men who believe in equality. This is a huge potential reorganization of American society. It's saying you're first and foremost, you know, you're, you're a mother. That's your first function in life. So if you're a girl, for instance, in university and you become pregnant, you can't get an abortion. So, you know, it could be that the, the person, your rapist who impregnated you, now because of Title IX and laws in Title IX, you could take that rapist and you could, you know, get him sanctioned, you know, potentially even put him in jail. But in this, these states where this is happening under the law now, then you would have to bear that man's child. You would have to spend the rest of your life with this child in your life. It will derail your life options, your career, your ambitions. It's, it's totally, I mean, it, it really is lunacy. It is extraordinary. This whole total reorganization of American values. So women are supposed to go home. So even like last week in the Senate, there was a pump act. So you could actually go to the office and pump breast milk and you'd have some protections around that. Wasn't a big thing, wasn't a hard act. Nobody asked for special you know, rooms and all sorts of stuff. It was pretty simple protection for women who are breastfeeding. But that didn't even pass in the Senate. Now, hold on, this is an easy thing to pass. What do you lose by passing a pump act? My word. So what is the message though? So you have a baby and then if you go to work, you can't express milk, right? Unless you have a benevolent employer, but you have no right to express milk that the Senate could have given you. So I guess the message is maybe you should stay home and not work and just take care of that baby. The evangelical sense that a woman's place is in the home, they're going to make it really easy to put you back in that place. So it is a huge reorganization. We're gonna feel this pain for decades to come unless something is done right away to change this. One thing the commentators are noticing in the, in the UK, and I even noticed this myself, is that companies, you know, so City, JP Morgan, um, today Louis Vuitton came out and basically said for their employees, they're going to protect the right for abortion, which means that you can have time off and also paid travel. So for you, is this a good thing for women's rights or is there more that they should be doing in order to kind of push this message forward? Oh, this is the start of the fight back. And I'm really glad that corporates are involved. Our own law firm, I mean, we, we have a view that if you are pregnant and you need an abortion, and for some reason, if you're working, you know, you're not in London where you can get one, but if you are in the States and you're in a state where you can't get it, we will pay for you to fly 
to where you can have an abortion. We'll pay for the abortion. We'll pay for the hotels and we'll give you time off work at full pay to have that procedure. And we're encouraging other companies to do this also. I mean, I must say we do the same if you're sexually assaulted, whether you're on our business or on vacation and you're sexually assaulted and you tell us and we will make sure you get a lawyer, you get medical care, you know, you get whatever support is appropriate and therapy, you know, afterwards, if you request that. So I think that the days of corporates looking the other way, thinking, well, somebody else will handle this problem. No, you have to get up in the morning and say, what can I do in business, in whatever I'm doing to make sure that I can try to buffer this a little bit, I could try to be helpful. Is there a risk of backfiring? So you mentioned that you're in California and that things are quiet and maybe it's because people, you know, it's a democratic state, people are wealthier and, and the companies that I mentioned are all professional workers who, who they're covering. So is there a risk that by companies offering this to their employees only rather than getting into the debate and saying something um, a bit more specific about where they want it to go, that it's going to mean that there's a whole section of society, the section who ultimately can't afford abortions, where the real negative impacts are going to fall on with the people who are wealthier not needing to get into the fight because their employers are taking are taking care of it. Oh, yes. And I mean, you're so wise about that, Grace. You know, look at what we've got right now. You know, pregnancy is a dangerous thing to do. It's not something one does randomly. We may have been told as girls, great to have a family, you know, look forward to that. And so we may enter pregnancy without a lot of thinking about it. And because we live in countries where, of course, you know, pregnancies are monitored and you have good health care and you don't hear about maternal deaths. But hold on a second. In the state of Georgia right now, for instance, in the United States, the maternal death rate is higher than in Mongolia. Now, let's think about that. Now, who, who are those numbers? Who are those people? Those are mostly indigenous women, women of color, and poor white women. So it's not just people of color, but largely they're going to bear this. They get pregnant. There's no monitoring of healthcare facilities or they can't get into healthcare facilities. So the pregnancies are not monitored. And if they are, perhaps not by the best medical staffs, you know, they, there's gonna be huge problems and there's going to be many, many deaths now. This law is mandating female death, no matter how you look at it. I was on a talk show the other day and I came on a woman was just finishing up and she's a right-wing evangelical, a white woman, and she was screaming about saving the lives of all these babies and how important it was and how excited she was finally all these babies would now survive. And I said, well, what about all the women that are going to die? You know, yeah. adult women, women who have other children to take care of in many cases, women who have parents to take care of, who have other social obligations in society, they're at risk, they're going to die. And she just looked at me as if I, I'm not hearing this, it doesn't compute, what are you talking about? There, there's no discussion of now the impact. How many deaths can we expect to have? It's just not going to be a few. There can be a lot of deaths. And you know, you can say, well, all right, these women can go get the abortion pills. But there's laws coming into place that are stopping the transit of those. And that's going to be important. But, but so you take abortion pills. And let's say that abortion hasn't quite worked out correctly because the abortion pills are not 100% effective as we know. So if you have some fetal material that's stayed in your vagina or uterus, if you have other problems, if there's an infection, these things all can happen. Then you have to go to a hospital and there you can be arrested for having an abortion. What about the surveillance these days, these menstruation apps that you know say when you're going to menstruate that a lot of young girls are using? And you know, what happens if a, there's a day that, oh, the app didn't show that you had your period. And then another month or two later, oh, you've got your period back. Well, under the surveillance that's going on now, and we're hearing the evangelicals are buying up the data from these apps that are being sold on the markets now, they'll be able to know that, oh, forgive me to be so direct, but Grace Lorden, she had her period, you know, every day, you know, on a monthly basis at this time. And then, well, a couple of months ago, her period disappeared and it came back three months later. Well, that's an indication that you may well have had an abortion and they can haul you into court. So, you know, a woman's body has now become a crime scene. How did this possibly happen? But it has happened. And what you said about the data, I, I just didn't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking that in and, and everything gets even more tricky around the type of data that you're describing because we don't actually have legislation about data ownership in the way that we even need 
in 2022. So the two things combined make everything much trickier than if this happened 40 years ago. Yes, indeed. No doubt about it. So and it's Pride Month, and I actually never thought I would be calling this out from um, about the US, but I will. Um, so Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has now said landmark high court rulings that establish gay rights and contraception rights should be reconsidered now that the federal right to abortion has been revoked. He has said those rulings were demonstratively erroneous decisions. The cases he cited are Griswold versus Connecticut, in which the Supreme Court said married couples have the right to obtain contraceptives. Lawrence versus Texas, which established the right to engage in private sexual acts, and Orbergfell versus Hodges, which said there is a right to same-sex marriage. Can I get your reactions and some predictions about where we are headed next? Are these are there real threats to these rights now? Well, all right. So we, you know, look the other way on the abortion threat. Clearly, we did, and and here it is. You know, it is uncommon. It is so rare for justices to invite litigation to come to them, basically saying, we will back you, we'll strike down those laws. You've got two justices, Alito and Thomas, joining and saying in that opinion, we are receptive to knocking down gay rights and gay marriage to stopping that in the United States, and even contraception. Wow. Um, It's it's bracing to have read that, uh, and more reason for us to take it seriously. Not taking it seriously that's not an option. So there's a question in the chat and from Marion Passmore that says, what about Ocasio-Cortez calling for the impeachment of justices who lied to Congress? Oh, you know, this is, yes, such a powerful question. Look, Biden came into office and his view was live and let live. We're going to leave the Trump people alone, essentially. They are doing the insurrection hearings, which I think are you know powerful and forceful. Where they're leading, who knows right now? And it's taken a long time to get there. But right now, you know, nobody, Biden doesn't seem to have the will to stand up to fight. And, and that has been a real disappointment for us. Live and let live is not getting us any place. If we don't actually battle these things and take these on frontally, we are going to lose. We've lost right now something that is absolutely unbelievably crushing. So, you know, if we don't go after the Supreme Court, we have Clarence Thomas, you know, I've, I've talked with Anita Hill. You know, I believe her utterly in her testimony that he's a sexual harasser. You know, we see his opinions. We see the conduct of his wife, who is a you know, QAnon person, who has views that most, you know, intellectuals would look at and say, those are certifiably very odd and ungrounded and dangerous. She has those views. She's published them. Certainly, he should be recused from, I mean, he's older now, too. He, he should leave the bench. But, you know, interestingly, with the Brett Kavanaugh, this chap, you know, Mr. Judge, who was his, you know, friend and who was present for the sexual, the attempted sexual assault or the sexual assault, I would say, you know, why haven't we found him? He was unavailable for that very brief hearing and investigatory period during before Brett Kavanaugh was approved. Well, how come we haven't found Mr. Judge and subpoenaed him and gotten his testimony and found out what's happened here? That hasn't happened. Again, it's that live and let live. And it's not just Biden. Obama also has had that view of not a big concern. Let's let it go. Let's be generous. Generosity has not gotten us any basic rights and it's lost us things. You know, my mother had more rights. My mother had an abortion and she had more rights to have an abortion than my daughters are going to have and my daughters-in-law. Huh? Hmm. And we spoke about this in the green room. I never thought I'd see a day where Ireland has more progressive laws around abortion as compared to as compared to the US. But but, you know, here, here we are. Um, Odessa has a, has a question which kind of continues the corporate the corporate um, comment that I made. Um, we know the corporate activism inconsistent with consumer values can have a negative effect on brand revenue, overall stock performance and not engaging will come at a price. How do organizations navigate this? Well, that's going to be the calculation, of course, because one might say in the States, mostly business look to their bottom line and what's it going to cost them, what it will, what will it gain them to take a certain action? You know, so that's going to be the key issue um, for our law firm. You know, we're a firm that's dedicated to advancing human rights. So it's a no brainer for us. It's part of what we believe in. We're living that way. Apple, Amazon, you know, Tesla, all these big companies it would be great if they would get on board with forceful statements and stand up on this. 
You know, there's not a history much of doing this. Um, we see with football, you know, when Kaepernick, you know, uh, gave the knee, you know, at football games, you know, people were initially surprised, but of course the whole team then joined him. And then, you know, even got women's sports people, Megan Rapinoe has, you know, given the knee also. So, I mean, it's really important that we get there, this out there and it becomes something of pride, I hope, just like taking the knee is something that's, you know, proud people do in sport. We need to do something in corporate America where people feel they can really show their politics. This this notion that a lot will have of, well, you don't want to impose your views on others and, you know, everybody should have a chance to express their own views. I'm afraid we're in a, you know, in a really desperate situation. Women are dying and and the ones that aren't dying are going to lead lives where they're going to have children that they can't afford. There's going to be higher crime because of that, because n- nobody that evangelical sector has not ever given a damn or done anything for those kids once they're born. So with those people, the diaspora of sadness and poverty will increase. And already now the middle class is declining and the underclasses are growing. This will just add to that. So I hope that there's real reason for corporations to take a position and stand up. But um, right now there's beginning talk and we can only encourage that and hope that more will happen. I mean, you know, honestly, I was surprised at how many companies signaled that they were always going to stand by their employees with abortion and travel. So I see that as a good sign. And I do think that, you know, global corporations can actually shape this debate, both in, you know, in, in, in looking to the next president and giving donations in order to make sure that Biden gets through. That was going to be my next question for you about what has Biden lost now in terms of supporting the Democratic Party more generally ahead of the next election? Because you mentioned that you think that the Republicans might have a shot at getting back in. Well, I, I think there's been a lot of criticism of Biden since he's come on board. And certainly, you know, the Afghanistan debacle, um, getting out of Afghanistan, leaving a lot of people behind, not doing that in a thoughtful, prepared way, exposing a lot of people to harm. That's a terrible mark on his, you know, list of what he's done. And I, I think, you know, most people that I speak to in, in certainly my work as a lawyer feel that he's really being inarticulate, that he's, there's no force there. He's not out there, you know, in a way that we'd hope to see on social rights issues. Kamala Harris is vice president. You know, she's basically absent. And, you know, she was given the job of, for instance, taking care of the border problem, immigration. Immigration is a huge issue. And instead of taking a positive, upbeat position, you know, advertising that, you know, immigrate, immigrants help run this country to make it profitable and cleaning up the border where we know, you know, the border problem is so great. You know, we don't have huge amounts of people coming across, but they are steady. They come to building shacks that are on the American side that are dishonorable. Why can't we put in place some serious facilities to care for these people before it's clear what should happen? And then the other thing we've heard reported is that these border guards, the American border guards, are raping these women as they come through. The rape problem is enormous. So, you know, if I were Kamala Harris, I'd be advertising that. I'd be putting that out in the press. I'd get people angry about that because we should be angry. But she's done nothing. You barely see her except at social functions. We have no backbench in the Democratic Party. Who are the next leaders? Who, who's going to come up? The only person I think who could be elected as a Democrat right now, absolutely, is Michelle Obama. A woman who has no interest in running for a political appointment. She's the only one I can think of who actually can be elected. Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, the older guard, they are that. They are older. They're much older than I am. And, you know, there's health issues and, you know, losing mental capacity issues in some of those cases. They need to retire. Who is coming up? What, what do we have? The, the Democrats don't seem to have been strategically planful. We, we don't have a plan that's going to work. And on the other side, you've got, of course, the, the crazy right-wing people. The Republican Party is not a party anybody that I know recognizes. You know, whoever would affiliate with this group, I really don't want to know personally. It, it's There's no real opposition. If he's controls, if Trump controls, say, 30% of the vote, okay, that 30% is, is important. And of course, they've had voter suppression now. So one of the big issues that Biden, again, has not been really forceful about is that people are losing the ability to vote. So the underclass, you know, is not going to be able to vote in the elections. And there should be outrage about that. It's a huge 
problem. If you can't get your people to vote, then how are you going to win an election? And that means that this smaller minority of vocal, hate-inspiring people filled with anger and frustration, dissatisfaction, they're going to run the American political compass. It seems destructive to me and all bad news. Biden, we need a political response. Biden must now step up to the plate. If not, we will lose more than we've ever, ever lost before. Everything that you're saying tonight, Anne, really gets me visualizing an idea where we have a population and there's people who are high income and people who are low income. And we know that's the trend in the US over the last industrial revolution, the kind of hollowing out of the middle. But now that because rights are being taken away, it doesn't actually impact the people at the top of the distribution so much because they can figure ways around it because they're not income constrained. But at the bottom of the distribution, that's where everything is hitting. And, And Terry has a question where she asks, can you elaborate on the implications of LARCs for sterilization of poor minority Black and Indigenous women who use LARCs to manage reproductive rights because they can't afford to travel? Well, the question begs the answer. It's the same miserable result. These women are going to suffer. There is more energy behind growing those organizations and supporting them than there ever has been. And they're public about it, so it's not even subtle. They're bragging. They're out there. They're, they're doing their best to put all these kinds of plans and others in place that are similar. That's bad news. So there's a question for me, Anne, but I, I'll, I, I'll answer first and then I'll throw it to you to see if you think differently. It's from Emma George, who says, a question for Grace. Why do you think the justices couldn't separate their individual religious beliefs from the impact their decision will have on the lives of millions of people? And I think, Emma, for me, it's just really emotional for them. And you making a decision like this when you're emotional, you're never going to make the right decision. Um, and, you know, I think we have to recognize that. And I spend most of my time when I'm in corporate companies trying to take the emotion out of decisions from hiring promotions to what project people are going to choose. Um, and this here are a group of people who probably aren't willing to take the emotion out of their decision um, and, and actually see what a, a critical decision would look like in this particular situation, which I'm guessing would lead us to a place where women can hold views themselves about abortion and they have rights over their own bodies, but rights aren't over anybody else's would be my would be my answer to Emma and. Well, you, you've got, let's say, you've got Amy Comey Barrett, a new justice on the court. Yeah. I, I mean, one might, I think, fairly characterize her as a woman who is, you know, from a religious cult. And, you know, most of us who practice law certainly would not have thought that she would be a appropriate candidate for a Supreme Court position. That was a total political appointee. And she has brought her religion onto the bench. You know, if you have the views that she has, and what some of the others have, then you're choosing God or the United States. And they've chosen their view of what God wants. And if they're also male supremacist, which others on the bench are who have voted for this, then it's your chance to assert the ultimate masculinity. It's the sense to say men are going to continue to dominate. You know, we're, we're going to knock women just out of this ballpark entirely. There have been other decisions, of course, from the court that also support that. You know, misogyny is huge on that bench and you know, women's rights don't exist. And so, you know, this is a chance for those men to feel like, and, and Amy Comey Barrett goes along with that because she, of course, comes from that kind of mental background that um, it's okay. It's, this is their opportunity to assert themselves, to put us back a hundred years to destroy women's advantages, except of course, for the allegedly enlightened wealthy white girls who, and, and people of color too, if they're that wealthy, you can maybe get around it, but they're doing their best to change the scene. And I'm, I'm sure they're thinking they're doing God's work. Imagine when Clarence Thomas goes home to his wife. I mean, you know, she must have an orgasm about what he's done. My hero, my hero, Clarence. So Joseph actually, as I mentioned this question as well, so when Ireland made its abortion laws, it got written into the constitution. And Joseph is, is, is asking, why can't we just make a law we couldn't before. Um, we have had limited vague amendments in our constitution that give us rights. Our law, on the other hand, is made by Congress. It seems like people want to have changes that go into the constitution. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or Can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. 
Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Well, you will recall that some years ago, when, when I was a young girl coming up, there was something called the Equal Rights Amendment that we tried to get passed in the United States. It was never passed. And it, all it said simply was that women would be equal under the law of the United States as men are equal. That was it. Couldn't have been simpler. We could not get that passed. It's still not passed. So if you, you can't even get that on a constitution, I, I doubt we're going to get a constitutional amendment, you know, supporting abortion. That, that's a step probably much more difficult. Um, another question um, on the uh, on the abortion um, overturning by Aline linked to white supremacy and asking, was the decision motivated to widen the race and class gap further in the U.S.? Consciously, of course not. Unconsciously, absolutely. Sure. Um, you know, the justices have a way of life and they see themselves in a certain privileged position, entitled position, close to God, male dominated. They like that very much. So, yes, I would think unconsciously it certainly did. And I think this is so Alicia's question kind of is an extension of that. And so she's she's is also asking about ableism, classism, white supremacy. But she asks, do you see the recent abortion restriction as part of a thought out end goal? And what are the legislators working towards? So if you were to forecast 10 years and the legislation that they might want to go through goes through, what's next? Well, um, you know, it's um, if the evangelicals continue, the Republicans continue, then they'll get back into power. They will then mandate, they'll take Trump's initial agenda, which of course advances the ultra rich. And we know that that group is, you know, defined, but they're pretty protected with very a lot of tax advantages and, and stuff. And we know that the world will not be favoring climate control. It will be more and more voter suppression. There'll be immigration issues will be, you know, really um, dreadful for those people who are you know, seeking to emigrate to the country. We'll have a larger role in terms of war on the world stage in certain countries. Uh, the future is not just about women, but everything women's lives touch. It is going to be a very different world. You know, the handmaiden's tale is probably not far off of some of that in, in some respects. It's going to be a world that it's hard even to anticipate just like we couldn't take seriously the fact that Roe would be overturned. You know, it's hard to anticipate what's coming and then you add technology into it. Look at porn today. You know, who, who would have known 20 years ago that porn would exercise the power that it has? We now know that boys at the age of eight and girls are learning about sex by watching pornography. The pornography that we litigate in this area, the ones that I see, that it never advances women. It's not a, you know, teaching women sexual anything. It doesn't advance women. It doesn't pleasure, show pleasure of women. It doesn't talk about women's orgasms or show how to have an ejaculation as a woman can have. There's no advancement of that. Porn is a really negative feature to humiliate women in most cases. And this is widespread. And amongst the younger generation, they freely discuss watching it and, you know, and they learn sexual practices from it. We hear from you know, people who study this that you know, and when I take you know, experts and talk to them that this is you know, the porn, the rise of porn is the reason that a lot of the younger generation who feasts on porn have such sad sex lives, at least compared to the sex life you know, I had when we, just, we didn't have that. We had to figure it out ourselves. So, so there's a lot of things that it's hard to weigh in all this, but certainly it's, it's bad news across the board in, in ways that I have not even begun and others haven't begun. Nobody's having that conversation. We're not putting our minds there quite yet. So I, I'm guessing, Anne, at, at other points um, in your career, there's been moments where it has felt that everything has gone backwards. Um, linked to Kate's question, is there a chance of an ideological shift in the other way? And if yes, how do we get there? So for the people who are, who are listening, for organizations, what would you like to actually see happen to push the other way? Okay, so here's where we could actually have some fun, if I dare even say that. Because I think if you do political change, you have to find a sense of humor because it's so hard. Years ago, about 1972, there was a thing called Ms. Magazine, still exists. Gloria Steinem organized this with a bunch of other really brave women. And one of the things um, I helped support them on is that there was an edition, and I don't know how many women it was, but we, this is before Roe v. Wade, and we approached women and said, if you've had an abortion, could we publicize the fact that you've had an abortion? 
we were asking women to admit to doing something that was illegal. We got mostly Republican women. Those were still the days when you were Mrs. John Francis McAllister. You know, you weren't down in your own name. And I remember going to women and saying, if you've had an abortion, and would you allow us to publicize your name to show the, the depth and breadth? Because one out of three women have abortions. And can we publicize that? And, and have you spoken to your husband? So many of those women I spoke to said, nope, I've never mentioned it to my husband, which means that men are not aware of the frequency and extent of the problem. And I said, well, would you go talk to him before we publicize your name? Most came back and said, he's fine. And these are mostly you know, Republican men. It was a different Republican party, socially progressive. And they said, sure, publish her name. And we put this edition out naming these women who claimed to have had an illegal abortion to try and start the conversation. Roe v. Wade came down afterwards. I remember being on the Yale campus as an undergraduate the day Roe v. Wade was decided. And I said, you know, this is a great day for men and women in America. Naively, I said that. And a, an older faculty member looked at me very patronizingly and said, Anne, no Yale woman has ever been denied an abortion. And I remember standing there thinking, okay, there's two Americas. There's the America I grew up in, you know, sort of, you know, lower middle class and not a lot of education. And we never had abortions that were legal. And then there is another whole social class that never has lost that right. They always had that. So, so those are those days. Now we're, we're past that, but going forward, I think we need to do things like get sex crime courts in place. And so there's a specialist courts that hear sex crimes and also abortion would fall into that now. So we have specialist people doing that. Civil rape laws are going to be really important to put in place. People are aware of the extent, again, and one out of three girls in the United States will be sexually assaulted. We know this. It may even be greater because we only know when people tell us and what they tell us is one out of three. But usually that's a private crime and people don't often mention it. So rape laws have to change. And the criminal justice system is broken on, on rape cases. You know, it's tough as hell to get a conviction, not because they're not truthfully raped, the women who bring these cases, but because the men lie. Everybody says, well, we don't really know he versus she. And there's a notion like in the, you know, um, the Brock Turner case in California, where the father testified that, you know, his son for 20 minutes of action, you know, his whole life is going to be destroyed. We'll stop that. I'd like to disallow that analysis. What about the girl? What about the victim? Nobody talks about their lives, that they drop out of schools. They then don't have the careers they could have. Their ambitions are thwarted. They don't make the money that they ever would have made because they have all these issues from the rape. They don't get the therapy they need. So I think the civil rape cases have to be brought. Um, rape kits, which we know we get taken in the States, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of sitting in, you know, in places of storage that never get evaluated. So this, the, that information, that rape kit is not entered into the database. So, I mean, you're losing capturing people. Um, and then certainly one of the things our firm is doing, we're setting up a website, which will be called the True, we're working with Paula Shear, who's a brilliant marketer and designer, and she helped to develop the um, corporate images of Uber, Tiffany's, a lot of others. She's going to work with us, and we're putting up a site. So if you have been raped, you can put your story on the website. You don't have to name yourself, but you have to name your rapist. Because these days, what we find is that women will say, and men will say they've been raped, but they don't want to name their rapist. And my view that unless we name our rapists, it's not going to stop because that will that will make things obvious. That will make people have to be accountable. So we're going to put it up there and name the rapist. We're getting insurance companies to sell us defamation policies so that if the threat of defamation comes, then okay, we're going to be able to fight cool. back effectively. And we will also vet the cases so we don't get a Ginny Thomas, wife of the Supreme Court justice, who comes up with a fake you know, case and puts it up and claims that we're irresponsible. So, I mean, I think those are just the start of things that we can do, but we have to start thinking creatively. We have to get out there and organize ourselves and do what we each can in our own ways to make this world the place it should be. Can you talk a little bit about the social norms around victims of um, sexual harassment and sexual discrimination and how they're portrayed? I think both by the media and by the public, there seems to be kind of this idea that the, the woman obviously needs to show that she's a victim 
And then as soon as she actually shows the damage that's there to herself, that's used against her um, very often in, 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 in these trials. And I, like a lot of this, this is linked to sexism, which, which, which we know. Um, but how powerful that actually is when you're kind of fighting against it in court. Yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. You know, it's the general view is that women lie and they don't tell the truth about this. And, and juries, you know, whenever I'm up in front of a jury, you know that that's what people are thinking. They're really hard about the women who bring this forward. Did she ask for it? How was she dressed? Did, was she wearing a thong? You know, was her bra sexy? Was she drunk? All the usual stuff. You know, it's when a person has something stolen from them, you know, your wallet gets taken. Nobody says, well, were you drunk? You know, what were yeah. you wearing? No, you know, you, you know what's right and wrong. And if somebody steals from you, then they should, you know, be punished for that. But rape, it's a free crime in Britain and in the United States. It's really something that you, you can barely win those cases. Uh, but I think we need to bring more of them. We need to raise hell. We have to be clear about the fact that women are sexually assaulted all the time. And, and we have to go to Parliament and we have to go to the US Congress and we have to get laws on the books so that you can prosecute these things. It's not just about the historical sex abuse that went on that the Catholic Church you know, members have done and the Buddhists do and, and, you know, male organized religion, we're fighting that all over the place. If it's a male organized religion, there's abuse. We're finding that everywhere, the Boy Scouts. But absolutely, if you're a corporation and you have that problem, you know, you have to solve it. You know, you're going to be held accountable. And so they'll do something. But the religious institutions, the universities, they all think they can get away with these crimes and they don't have to be honorable about it. You know, and it used to be when we used to sue the Catholic Church years ago, the bishop would say to me at the end, well, you know, you know Dr. Olivares, um, you know, we're a good place. We're a bunch of good people. And it's really not our fault that Father Joe, you know, did this. And I'll say, Your Excellency, Father Joe apparently went to 29 different parishes, but you kept sending him there. We know of 182 boys that he has ruined the lives of. And I'm not hearing any concern about that. And, you know, he says, well, but, you know, you don't get concerned for those situations and for women who have been abused. So the Survivors Network, we have to organize better. We have to become a force for bringing across legislative change. We have to get publicity out there. We need to get websites up like the true. People have to tell their stories. You've been doing this for such a long time. Do you have any insights into the kind of phenomenon where people put their head in the sand and support the perpetrator um, rather than actually just dealing with the problem? Because the, the example that you gave, it feels to me, it would have been much easier for the church to deal with that way back when it started happening and to deal to deal with it properly. So what's the motivation behind the people who aren't involved um, and who are actually letting the victim down? Yeah, well, we have culture. I mean, obviously, it's a huge amount of culture. But let's go back when I was at Yale as an undergraduate. Um, the Yale Corporation asked me to do a report on the status of women at the institution. We were 10 years in of having women at Yale. And I did that study. And one of the things that came up was that a lot of the male faculty were having sexual relations with the students. And it was considered part of their prerogative, their right. And the students in a period of sexual freedom would come and think, well, you know, I'm flattered. It's me. He wants me. No, you're just one of a group out of for this four years that you're there. Then you go and then he chooses again. So we brought the first case um, that defined sexual harassment to be a, um, you know, wrong under the law, the civil rights laws of the United States. Nobody had talked in terms of sexual harassment. We didn't know that term. And I also talked in terms of date rape, which is a term that I you know, it was a, I was at a conference with Gloria Steinem. There were a thousand women in the audience. And I asked, how many of you have been raped? And nobody raised their hands. And then I said, okay, how many of you have been date raped? Which everybody could relate to. And almost every hand went up wow. in the audience. That was 1973, 74, thereabouts. So I was able then to talk about date rape. The sexual harassment case went forward. All we wanted from Yale was a database so that if you had this problem, you've been sexually harassed, if you've been raped by a professor, you could put it into a central database because Yale was very divided into different places. And so theoretically, you could be raped at the medical school, but the law school wouldn't know it or sexually harassed at the design school, but you, you wouldn't know it. So you could have a repetitive you know, sexual predator. You wouldn't know that you think was just a one-off. So we wanted just, that's all we wanted. No money, nothing else. We lost because Yale took the position that it would defend, it said, we're defending these men. 
that was the culture. Um, they would not even consider. I mean, one of the, the um, Ronnie Alexander brought a case against Keith Bryan in this case, who is a director of a band and in New Jersey had been credibly accused of raping two undergraduate girls at his high school. But nothing went into people's you know, records into there. You would apply for a job. There's no way your next employer would know that. So we need to change it. We need to make sure it goes into people's records. So you travel with that information. There are consequences. But, you know, we we lost the case because Yale did the position of saying, you know, you all have graduated. They delayed and delayed. So we graduated. So the court said that we did not have standing to bring this this case. One woman, a black woman, Pam Price, she went forward against um, Mr. Duvall, who's teaching in Minnesota. And I mean, they just couldn't believe that a, you know, a black girl had been approached for sex by this man. They wouldn't accept it. But the judge did say that sexual harassment, a term that we were using and created, and the law that you know we were, we said it falls under the Civil Rights Act of 1972, that that's against the law. And so our case actually put law on the books that other cases came afterwards and they won on our legal principles, the principles that I and others designed. So we're able to make a real change. But you say, why did Yale do that? It would have been so easy. They paid over a million dollars, go back 45 years. Why would you pay that big, huge money as an educational institution yeah. not to put a database in place? And, and that's because the alignment of interests is not the same. I mean, two things happened. You know, at the time, um, I had uh, the head of public information at Yale actually went and said, Ann Olivares, she's um, a lesbian, you know, and they said that not as a compliment, I can assure you. And, you know, I've been living with the same man for 45 years. It didn't matter that, in fact, I had a demonstrated record of not making that life choice, although I certainly embraced that life choice and propounded it and, you know, have, have always called myself, you know, politically a lesbian. But they did that. And they also said I was flunking out. I graduated at the top of my class. I won a Marshall Scholarship, a Rhodes Scholarship. I get into Harvard and Yale Law Schools. That, that was not easy to do. So the notion that a large institution like Yale, an institution I loved and admired, would actually dirty people, that would, they would play mean and dirty was, it, was a shock to my, my naive soul. I've seen it all the way through. And still today, universities, they seek in the UK and in the United States, they seek to protect themselves. And I think one of the things that I was hoping Biden would do on these new Title IX regulations is to actually insert a monetary penalty so that if the school is on notice that Professor X is a sexual predator and they've done nothing about it, and then they let these investigations go on, you know, months and months, sometimes even years, and they don't protect the person who's been assaulted, that I think there should be a monetary damage award against the institution and potentially against the person also who is handling those investigations. Once that happens and you, you know, assign charges to this, my bet is that the universities, for instance, their whole social mentality will change. The culture will change. And they have to pay money damages for not protecting survivors and creating an atmosphere where women and men are raped pretty constantly, then they should suffer from that. And I think they will then change their behavior. They will come on board and they will make sure that the survivors don't have to become survivors, that these people, their students will be protected. So we have to think differently out of the box and do something about that. Can you help me, Anne? And, and maybe, I'm, maybe I'm naive and I missed a link. So for me, I just feel the wrong people are in charge. Because if you came to me with evidence that Mr. X had committed a rape, who was a faculty member and I was in charge of a university, I would manage him out. That would be my, my, my goal as a manager to protect the institution. And, and for me, that feels the best thing to protect the institution. But you seem to be saying the opposite, actually. To protect the institution, it's necessary to go against the victim. What am I missing? Or do we just have the wrong people in charge? Well, maybe if I may, and forgive me to hold you to account, for instance, you just said you would manage him out. Okay, managing out on what way? Do you put it on his record? Do you actually get, you know, take it to a tribunal so there's evidence against him? Managing him out by saying, you know, it's time, Fred, to actually leave because things are not going to look so good. I think that would not be what we in anybody's interest because you're just making sure that Fred goes down the street yeah. and continues the same behaviors. I was, thinking one of the, I was thinking more one of the others, but supporting supporting the person who brings who brings the claim um, would feel to me to be in the right interests of the institution. Yes, it would seem to me that would be pretty obvious. 
But of course, I often say every institution that we've ever sued in the United States, educational institutions and in the, uh, and, uh, in the UK, and we've sued many of them, as you know, they always say to the students consistently, keep this confidential. Let's just have an informant, informal arrangement and it's gonna take some time. And the students all come back to us and say, they're made to feel like they're the trouble persons, that they're dirty, that they could make making false allegations. Often the universities want their phones to read everything on their phones, which is none of their business. I mean, it's really soul destroying how they've done this. And it's not different when I was you know, at Yale and when I was, you know, 1920, I was raped by a man who's a doctor in California, Dr. Calvin Hirsch. He's a geriatrician. I was strangled and raped and I called the Yale police and reported it. And they said to me, um, so he is a white guy? I said, yep, he's a Yalie. He's, you know, on, on a pre-med place. He's going to be a doctor. Um, and they just wouldn't even send over an investigator. And they said, this is not rape. You must have asked for it. This is something you clearly invited. And I said, no, did, did you not hear about the fact pattern? I didn't invite this, this was a rape. Interestingly, I couldn't get any joy from that, but there was a woman down the hall just a few weeks later who was raped by a black townie, they're called, you know, people who are not at Yale, people of color who live in New Haven, Connecticut. And she was, you know, she was sexually assaulted, she was raped and the police had no hesitation in dealing with that. And they called that a rape, but interestingly, she got a lot of sympathy and there's a certain stigma about it. So we've got to have to get rid of the stigma and we have to stand up and say, hey, it happened to me. And we, and we have to force institutions to not, I think they're protecting the institutions by not saying if there's a rape culture on campus, there is a rape culture. So let's deal with it as opposed to ignoring it, which is what most of them do right now. I am really sorry that you had that experience and I did think when you put it up, it was extraordinarily brave because it probably helps people who weren't talking about issues issues themselves. So I absolutely take the point that by people being brave enough to put their stories out there, it normalizes speaking about it, which I think we absolutely need. Um, Teresa Almeida is asking a question for the UK, Anne. So she's saying, you've mentioned the right wing in the US. Can you also comment on the UK landscapes and the threats to equality here, such as not including transgender conversion therapy in their plan or the new protest laws? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we've had, what was it, uh, 86 um, MPs come out publicly, you know, against, well, in favor of the decision of the Supreme Court in the United States. And you've got people like Reese Moggs, and, you know, we know who these people are. Um, there, there are, you know, there's, a, there's support. I think uh, Europe as a whole, Britain is a much more progressive and enlightened place on these issues. Um, but of course, it's not, um, it's easy to get an abortion in Britain, but you know you still have to have two doctors sign off, and uh, you have to give them reason that it's going to hurt your mental health. So it's not a straightforward thing. Um, you know, I, my youngest boy is in the NHS as a doctor, and he's been doing obstetrics and gynecology for a while. And he says, as a feminist in that activity, <coughs> that you know abortions are routine. That he doesn't feel there's any stigma to it. It's, it's a different mentality entirely. Um, you know, when my mother had her abortion in 1972, three, 1973, she said she went to New York City. There's a group of 300 women sitting in a room, no men. They called her by a number in, sat her on a bench, said, you know, put her in stirrups, spread your legs. A male doctor came in, did the operation. Not a word was said to her. And afterwards, she got down left and they said to her, you know, $420 or whatever it was. And, and they left her. And that has stayed, you know, in her mind. We're not in that place here. I don't think that's the case. You know, I certainly hear of, I live in London. I hear all the time of girls having abortions. They're very direct about it. Um, so, you know, I think that's a really positive thing. But of course, you know, we have to change who's in parliament. We have to put more women in parliament. We have to get rid of, you know, the hierarchy in the Lords by having the Lords stay male and, and change that. We have to hit all the aspects of misogyny and do what we can to change it. You know, I'm not concerned as I am in the States for where things stand, but maybe we should all be, maybe we should be vigilant. Maybe what, you know, what might happen in Britain is what just happened in the States. I hope not, but I don't want to let there be any chance that it could happen here 
we, we need to keep this right and these protections and, and for trans people and uh, across all sectors, you know, the, the question you're asked a wonderful question. There's so much work to do. This, we're just still at the beginning. You know, somebody said the other day, well, you know, the Me Too movement was a really good thing. I said, hold on. You say, was a really good thing? So I think it's just starting. You know, what are you talking about? This has to be part of the future landscape. It has to be part of our lives. Can you say something about narrative, um, Anne? So I know you've been a feminist since you were in Yale and since the very beginning um, of your life. I know the data tells us that people really become in tune with feminism around the time they have a baby or when they start hitting a glass ceiling when they're in work. And actually in their 20s, it, it passes them by. So we see the kind of the people declaring that they are feminists rising proportionately as, as, as women get older. So is there something about the narrative that isn't capturing the minds of young women that we need to change in order to kind of, you know, in, in, in order to show them just how important these discussions actually are? Yeah. Look, I, I became a feminist um, earlier on than before I had kids because I, you know, came of age at a time when there was in the States a civil rights movement, a, a black rights movement. The Catholic Church was seen to be progressive with Pope John the Twenty-Third. Um, there was a lot going on in the fabric of American society to bring across social change. And so, you know, I was able to get into Yale, which for my social class was never in the cards, but I got into Yale. I didn't get any support from my school in making applications. They said, you know, you're a joke. You know, why would anybody take you? Because I was a girl, you know, top of my class, but I was a non-entity. So when I, by the time I got to Yale, I, and I realized that that institution was hugely sexist, I was shocked because I came wanting to revere this educational institution. And I was so grateful. Every day I was grateful to be there. And from there, then I won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to England and saw in some ways Britain was behind American women because American women of my generation have a view of equality that you know we're, we're loud about it. We're really forceful about it. We all declare ourselves as feminists, of course. We never take our, our partner's names when we live with them or in marriage. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of being. So Britain seemed a little bit behind, but by the time I got my rose, I was deeply committed to paying it forward. I felt I'd had so many advantages because of the laws changing. Educational institutions in the States, Yale had just taken women. The Rhodes Scholarship had just taken women. So I, I was really so honored and I felt I have a debt to society. I have a de debt to women that I have to do what I can to make others have the same advantages. Now we do see, you know, for my generation, and I'm 67, when we came of age, I have a marriage contract with my husband. It details everything. I mean, I look back and even how many times we're going to have sex a week and what kind of sex and, oh my, you know, being youthful, you're so committed to ideals and, you know, everything from the laundry to, you can imagine it, fixing the car, everything was in that contract. Needless to say, and embarrassing to say, none of that was ever honored. And not because I didn't want to honor it, but um, life got to be such that, you know, in my marriage, as much as I'm married to a feminist and he works in my law firm and we work together on committed causes and I adore him still, you know, I did 90% of all the social organizing. I had a full-time job. I earned for a lot of years, most of the money in the family. And still I organized the children. I did all the social work. I sent thank you notes. I bought the presents. The list is on endlessly. And that's where it starts to fall apart. You begin, if you have money, to hire other women to come in and do a lot of the work that your husband should be doing. Yeah. You know, that, that's one solution that, you know, certainly I embraced. I was desperate. I was either going to leave my husband or I'd have to get people in to help because I couldn't do everything. You know, that's where it comes apart. And women seem, though, to enter marriage thinking it's going to be equal. I very rarely see what I would think is an equal marriage. The women are enculturated to work hard and be focused. The ones that come and work in our law firm are powerhouses. They work really hard, endlessly, but they also run their homes, whether they're married or not, whether they have kids or not. It's really tough. And the children, of course, you know, break the back. And, and I'm always amazed still in this country in Britain, when people come in and, you know, in the States, we don't even have a maternity leave policy, but in Britain there is, but there's a notion that, you know, it's like women have to pay for the childcare out of their money. There's a notion that women should take a lot of time off. It derails women's careers. You know, you have a kid, you're going to earn a lot. If you're in the law business, you're going to earn millions less in your lifetime if you start to back down and not work. 
it's the women that are bearing it still. It's the women who are asking for maternity leaves. Why? I mean, you want to solve this problem, clearly put in the Swedish type of policies, make sure that the men are incentivized with money to make sure they become proper fathers in the same way that the women are proper mothers, proper parents we need to have. And we need to organize a structure. So we go to parliament, we should insist on these things that businesses have to offer equality so people can both parent. Until we have two parents for kids in real ways, we're going to have mass inequality for women. And I think and what you're touching on, I think companies are doing much, much better with parental leave now, where men are offered six months in the same way as women. I think there's some companies that I know where the men take it and they're actually, I won't say forced to take it, but they're strongly encouraged to take it. And the women who work there feel their careers are in a much better place. And then there's the companies where the men take it in weeks. But when you're saying that, I'm reflecting on where we were in the beginning, where these are professional workers who can afford the help if they need it, in honesty. And yes. as the, the burden is always going to be on the people who um, who don't have employers, who, who, who will be able to give them six-month um, parental leave, who are on minimum wage jobs. So isn't the answer then, to follow on with that, Grace, that across the country, certainly in the United States it's needed, here in Britain, that we put in place excellent first-class child care so that it's a wonderful thing to take your child from a very early age and bring them to a state-sponsored, clean, progressive, exciting, wonderful place of happiness for children. And we put them there. And so they go through schools. Shouldn't our first monies be on that? And that will give women a chance to continue their lives to be what they can be in life, the best persons they can be, they can explore their gifts, entirely. which society will benefit from. I agree with you entirely. And I will I, so two things. We've loads of questions in the chat that I didn't get to. So I'm going to ask Sasha Augusti, who I will thank for organizing the event tonight, to take those so we can try to answer them offline. Um, I also had loads of questions for you about work. So I will invite you back another time to talk more about professional women who are working that were submitted from lawyers, from people working in banks, from people working in tech firms, um, talking about discrimination. But I'm going to give the last question for you, Anne, to Alina Malia, um, who is a sixth form student from Greater London, who says, touching on what you've said about abortion being ignored for too long, we've seen that many social issues blow up in the media, get mass coverage and fade away. Do you think we're in danger of this happening with abortion? And is there any way we can stop this micro trend of media coverage happening? Well, that's the real question of the hour. She's asked it. This is what faces all of us. If the answer is, will this happen? There's a heart, there's a chance it will if we accept, you know, what's been doled out to us. And if we find our dignity and join together as women and men and say, no, no. And we get clear that, you know, this issue is something that is vital to our living and how we live. You know, I talked about my mother had more rights than my daughters will have. You know, we build bridges and roads to get men to work, but we can't build childcare centers to get women to work. We have a real distortion of what our priorities are. We need to get, I hope, people to speak up and to say, nope, it's gone too far. We've got to change this. And we do it on all fronts. We do it on the civil rape issues. We do it on sexual harassment. We do it on abortion, our revenge porn. You know, all these issues that affect us so much, they should become important issues, not the ones that people like Obama, a good man, and Biden, another good man, say, really not now. And we should back up when Hillary Clinton says, we're going to lose Roe v. Wade, we're going to lose abortion rights if you elect Trump. She should never have been ridiculed. So we have to make sure we're in those audiences. We're walking on the streets. We're petitioning Congress and Parliament. We have to organize and fight. And I'm glad, and our law firm is glad to support anybody who wants to do that and wants to talk to us in any serious way, we'll be glad to put our resources, our money, our time to assist in this. This is our lifeblood. This is what we care desperately about. And please come to us, come to each other. Yeah. Whatever yeah. we can do, we should do now. And I will say, Anne, when I was studying um, economics, one of the papers that I clung to dearly was a paper by Claudia Golden that showed that the contraception technology changes in the 70s was one of the biggest impetuses for change for women inside in the labor force because they could delay their fertility. And I really hope that the changes that we saw on Friday aren't going to be giving us regression in the way that the contraception progression gave us in the 70s. 
Um, thank you. I, I, have, I have so many more questions. I wish we could stay much longer. I'm definitely going to have you back. And I'd encourage anybody who is who has been affected by any of the issues that we discussed tonight to reach out to me or to reach out to Anne um, to make sure that, that you actually get the help that you need. Um, I'm Grace Lorden from the London School of Economics. And the last thing is for me to thank Dr. Anne Olivius, a trailblazing lawyer who once again is being brave in leading the way on the discussions of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks for the work you're doing, Grace. Thank you. you. Speak soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.